Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing us and what to do about it. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America and a lecturer at Johns Hopkins University. And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer at Clemson University. So today we're going to talk about this piece in The Atlantic written by Barton Gelman that seems to be getting a lot of attention. It's a very provocative piece. Trump's next coup has already started, and it kind of outlines the potential threat to American democracy more broadly, but also to really the presidential election in 2024. It covers a lot of ground. I think we came to the conclusion it's 79 pages long. It takes over an hour and a half to listen to. Um, So it goes into a lot of detail about the people who think the 2020 election was stolen, who supported January 6th, who want to push alternate narratives of January 6th, um, and also into some of the efforts to change how presidential elections are decided, the ways in which elite Republicans, elite elected Democrats are dealing with all of these, all of these questions, um, and overall, you know, it's a very alarming piece, and and as I said, got a lot of attention. Lee, do you want to kick us off? I think you were, um, you you win the prize for most detailed attention to this piece, and you had a really interesting tweet about it earlier in the week. Oh, oh, do I win the prize? Woohoo! What, what do what do I win? I mean, I did read the whole piece, and I highlighted it, and I've got, you know, maybe I can scan uh, my like notes and put it in the show notes. So I I I, I want to contest. In the spirit of this episode, I want to contest Lee's claim to the most detailed reading of the piece. The big lie is what I'm going to call that, Julia, from now on. Only I know how detailed I read it. I mean, I can't regurgitate it here on air. So the response that I had, and you know, this is something that I've kind of been struggling with my own work and my own analysis, is what is the balance between ringing all the alarm bells and saying this is a major crisis and you know if we don't act we could lose our democracy versus trying to offer some sort of positive vision for what what a better democracy looks like in the future and what the reason i worry about that is because sometimes i worry that too much of this sky is falling stuff just makes people feel incredibly demobilized like there's nothing they can do the world is collapsing around them and you know in some ways it kind of prevents people from mobilizing and doing the hard work of democracy participation that they need to do. On the other hand, I don't think it's crazy at all to envision a 2024 in which a bunch of Republican state legislatures and and Republican state secretaries of states in closely contested battleground states, you know, decide that there's some reason why Trump or the Republican candidate, I'm assuming it's Trump at this point, actually won. And then we have this kind of very contested situation where, you know, there's two slates of electors and the House votes by state delegation and there's more Republican state delegations. And there's this whole sort of, you know, legitimacy crisis that spills over into violence and that that continues to escalate into retribution. And, you know, we, we have this period of, of authoritarianism in America. Like, I don't think that's at all a low probability scenario at that point. At the same time, I don't know, like, I want people to get out and vote, but I also feel like we need to offer something beyond just preventing the worst 
because it just feels incredibly demoralizing and demobilizing. And you know, it really does sap energy. And, and I worry about that becoming a self-reinforcing dynamic of, oh, you know, we're, we're basically uh, effed as a democracy. And so, you know, let's just forget about it and focus on our private lives. That's real cheerfully. You know, I, the first thing I want to say is, you know, we talk about democracy and I'm not going to have the democracy republic argument here. I mean, we can. I don't know if many of our listeners are interested in that. I mean, in fact, as we're a democratic republic, you know, no one rules in America. In a democracy, the people rule. No one rules in America. That's the design of our system. No one is in charge. Our separation of powers, federalism, uh, the dispersed power, ambition, counteracting ambition, all of these things are designed to prevent anyone from being in charge. As we know, Federalist 47, the founders are very specific when they talked about tyranny. Tyranny is the concentration of all power in one set of hands, whether they be one, a few, or all the people. So again, I think we need to kind of reorient ourselves. I mean, maybe some people want the people to be in charge, but that's one of the problems that the Constitution was designed to correct, because as we know, if we look at the state um, constitutions during the critical period after the independence, before ratification of the Constitution, we had a situation where popular majorities and the lower elected, uh, popularly elected assemblies of the state legislatures were running roughshod over the rights of individuals, of minorities, Baptists. Virginians hated the Baptists and they would persecute them because they were a minority and they had no safeguard. And one of the things I want to kind of take issue with later in this piece is that it poses the question of who will safeguard our constitutional order. Well, that presumes someone with the power to do so. It presumes a ruler. Who will rule us, who will safeguard our order. Our order is designed to safeguard itself through our institutions and people fighting to try to win in politics in these different places. And I think our emphasis on the presidency in particular is the be all and end all, is the place that the person who's going to take us to the promised land has kind of also contributed to this sense of existential angst and dread that we currently have. And look, it's not just Republicans. Rewind to 2000 with Bush v. Gore. I remember the reaction to President Bush, and we had people calling Bush basically a Nazi after the war on terror. They stole the election from Al Gore, right? This idea that, you know, the election is illegitimate. The 2000, I mean, 2016 election, Hillary Clinton tells Joe Biden, whatever happens, if you lose, you better be prepared to fight that constantly in the courts. You have to do not give in do not give up. And she's telling them that in August of 2016. And then after that, we have people who say that Trump's an illegitimate president because he didn't um, win a majority of the popular vote, even though there is no such thing as a popular vote in the Constitution. He won a majority of the Electoral College. Now, we may need to change that, but that doesn't make him an illegitimate president. It may mean that we should have a conversation about reforming things. So, I mean, I think there's this idea that questioning the legitimacy of a president isn't a new thing. I mean, hell, we can go back to Andrew Jackson, who retired his Senate seat after 1824, called um, Henry Clay basically Judas and said he's going to die and then went out and basically spent the next four years like trying to undermine the legitimacy of the Adams administration by calling it corrupt. And corruption back then had a special resonance in our politics that I think we are desensitized to today. But one thing I just want to just to start and preface this whole thing and this whole analysis of this piece is when Trump's next coup has already begun. Well, let's let's just take a second. Let's just stop and look at what the word coup actually means because you know words do have meaning, right? It's a sudden, violent and unlawful seizure of power from a government. 
So January 6th, I think this piece does an excellent job of conflating January 6th and the actions of what's happening in the states like Arizona, Georgia, Texas, Florida, et cetera. And January 6th, was it a sudden thing? Yes, I think it was. Was it violent? Yes, clearly. Was it unlawful? Yes, clearly. Was it a seizure of power? No, I don't think it was. It wasn't even a serious attempt to do so. I mean, what, what kind of seizure of power would that have been? I don't think anyone thinks that that could have succeeded in any way, shape, or form. Then we kind of look at state actions that have happened since in these state legislatures. Are they sudden? No. Are they violent? No. Are they unlawful? No. I think you can look at the Constitution and see very clearly the authority of the states to basically make changes to how they award their presidential electors. And they can make changes via the state legislatures. This goes back, I mean, going back to the 1824 election and the decade before that, state legislatures made changes that made the selection of presidential electors popular. They may, it was a popular vote, but before that, it wasn't a popular vote. So, you know, you can make these changes. That may not be a good idea. They may ought not to do it, but the idea that it's somehow illegitimate and therefore a coup is, I, I don't think is an accurate one. And then lastly, is it a seizure of power of government? No. Was it a coup when the states, uh, all the states that say South Carolina about the 1832 election had said, you know what, the people are going to choose the presidential electors, not the state legislatures. Was South Carolina like fighting the legitimate, great, righteous fight and against all these other states by saying, no, we, you can't do that. You can't change the law because that's illegitimate. That's a coup. No, of course not. The states change how they do things, and they've changed how they do things over time. They will continue to change how they do things, and those are arenas of democratic politics, and the people have recourse in those states to alter those things. And then lastly, we talk about the sense of dread here, because I do think we're overstating it. One, even if this were to all happen, even if we accept it all on face value, this has to be a very close election an extraordinary close election for this kind of thing to happen. And maybe it will be. Look, I didn't think Trump was going to be as good as close as he did the last time. And for the record, I don't think this election was stolen. Uh, I don't think that uh, I'm, I'm horrified by what happened on January 6th. I watched it. I watched it unfold. It was very violating to me. I think it was a terrible thing. And I think the people who did it ought to be punished according to the law. But that doesn't mean that it was a coup. And so I just question the entire premise of this 79-page article. And, and by the way, The Atlantic, if you're listening, I, I would love to write a 79-page article for you. Just let me know. All of my editors I've ever had have always told me that that's too long. So sign me up. So this is kind of weird, but I agree with James about a bunch of these things, although I, I think my kind of fundamental take is somewhat different. Here's kind of my view of this. And to some extent, I think my view of the general state of American democracy, it makes Lee look like Mr. Rogers. I have been thinking about this and I keep coming back to the conclusion and, and that- Julia, sorry, they both have great hair. I mean- Lee and Mr. Rogers is phenomenal. Yeah, that's, so what I think is the thing that I keep coming back to is the democracy took a real hit. I don't know if I would say it died, but took a real and important hit in 2016. And let me explain what I mean by that. And then I want to sort of piggyback off of some of James's points about the state and evolution of American democracy up to that point and what this all means for some of the distinctions that, as James points out, don't really come out very well in this argument. So I think what happened in 2016 is that by, by winning the presidential election, Trump kind of elevated a lot of beliefs that were in conflict with his oath to protect and defend the Constitution. I think that's that's the issue. And we don't really have a clear constitutional remedy for that. Impeachment is 
not effective. That's a whole other podcast. And we've already done that podcast. Um, and we can do it again. But we just don't have a way that sort of fits in our democratic, I'll call them democratic expectations, our expectations about how the process works. Our, our expectations are very procedural, which means that it's okay if somebody loses the popular vote and wins the electoral college. Most people accept that. And I would I would sort of dispute your characterization, James, of the 2000 and 2016 aftermath. I think Democrats grumbled. There was not a widespread effort to say that the results didn't count. I mean, setting aside January 6th, the obvious thing, there was not an effort uh, of kind of widespread cross-state effort to change the certification of the results. And there wasn't this kind of drumbeat of this ignores 71 million Americans and this sort of idea that somehow those votes were more legitimate and counted more, which is a point that Gelman makes in one of the anecdotes in the piece. But, you know, I think the real problem is we're not saving American democracy right now. We're digging it back out from 2016 and from the election of a president who embraced values and ideas and actions that were in conflict with his constitutional oath that vowed to push back against you know the will of the people in some cases to push back against procedures against the notion of legitimate opposition which the constitution even though it doesn't explain what how that should look procedurally i think assumes that legitimate opposition has to exist and so that's you know, I think that's really where the problem lies. And once you have, once you have a president who is embracing phrases like overturn, I think the journalist Michael Cohen has an interesting piece from about a year ago about how nobody in Trump's kind of inner circle in the White House wanted to go along with his effort to overturn the election. And that by using that language, he sort of conceded the point and that's really where, where we're digging out from is this notion that legitimate opposition no longer exists, that procedures are no longer valid, um, that no Democrat can ever hold office in a legitimate way. And that's where the procedural part of this makes me really nervous, because it is totally constitutional for states to decide they're going to allocate their electoral college votes differently, that the state legislature is going to, to make that decision. And as James points out, that was not abnormal in the early republic. And we have never codified that change as an informal change to expect that those follow the popular vote. So that's really what I think makes me nervous, particularly in the context of things like Merrick Garland's nomination for the Supreme Court in 2016. And the idea that Republicans in Congress just kind of said, you know, no, F you, you can't govern. And then did the opposite thing when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died in the fall of 2020. You know, you've got to, you've got to pick one or the other. And that sort of inconsistency to me really suggests um, a willingness to go beyond playing hardball and into denying legitimate opposition. And so that's really, you know, that's where I get concerned. And I want to also respond to this idea before I before I get into some of my reactions to the Gelman piece and kind of what I want to see instead. The thing that I sort of get to here, thinking about the the hit to democracy that already happened. I've been thinking a lot about your line, James, about how no one rules in America. And I agree with your your philosophical point, but I think in practice, it just doesn't, it's just not true. And that that's the other part of the transition in Trump taking office in 2017. It's not just a president who's unwilling to uphold his oath of office in many different ways, many different facets, but that that was the moment in which we started to be ruled. 
And, you know, you can sort of see it, you can sort of see it creeping in different ways. You can sort of see this rising sense of electoral mandates and the sort of back and forth about legitimate opposition and expansion of the things the federal government does that seem like, okay, it's hard to figure out how to incorporate a lot of different perspectives in a pluralistic way under those political conditions. When it came to this government, it was like every piece of the puzzle was in place, right? You have the stated desire to marginalize minority groups. You have supporters talking about marginalizing those groups, even more than the elected officials. You do have a minority president, and I'm not saying that's illegitimate, but it does matter. And so you have a party that's won fewer votes and yet isn't approaching governance in the spirit of collaboration, but instead approaching governance as, you know, we're going to do what we want. And we're still seeing this. We're still seeing this in the role that the the Supreme Court is now playing in in various issues where they seem likely to decide the opposite way of what public opinion is. And to me, this just everything just feels like we're being ruled and we're going to continue to be ruled. And that's really at the heart of this. This is why I think, you know, these sorts of pieces, these alarmist pieces, maybe they're useful in mobilizing people. Someone made a good point on Twitter, and I don't remember who it was, that part of the reason that there was some accountability for things like January 6th was because people were really were primed to think about these issues. And that part of that came from these more kind of this sort of alarmist media about democracy. But at the same time, I do think it, the piece sort of mushes together, like, look at these crazies in as kind of Trump militia and sort of that part to me is just really voyeuristic. And then on the other hand, the sort of look at what elected Republicans are doing as far as replacing election administrators and potentially changing election laws. Those are different phenomena. They might be related, but you know, that's that piece then is like, okay, how are these related? Or there's a piece that that is thinking about, okay, what can be done? You know, what was done when uh, I think a lot of people agree there was democratic backsliding in the 1890s or around that that period, starting even in the end of reconstruction. What was you know, what was done about this? What were successful points of, of resistance? And how is it different now that we have a more federalized situation? How is it different given that we have, as James points out, now hundreds of years of sort of operating at the margins of questioning the legitimate opposition, the legitimacy of the other party, which is true, is something that it's kind of always lurking in the American political discourse. And now it's like, okay, the consequences of that are very real. It's not just rhetoric. But, you know, I would like, I always like to see more specificity in in pieces, but also more, I mean, more action orientation. And then I guess, you know, finally, to shift the perspective from we're saving American democracy to we're digging back out from already a really significant blow to American democracy. So that was that was a lot of different threads I'm trying to tie together there. Lee, can I just like two minutes just jump in real quick? Because I think I just want to clarify some the two things that Julia said, and I think they're very uh, insightful. But I mean, on the ruling piece, you know, I just, uh, again, I think you're right, but I think we need to be specific. I mean, how did Trump rule us and what was the content of his rule? And and were Democrats, if, if he was ruling us, 
were they opposed to his actions? I mean, we can look at the judiciary. I mean, the uh, the vast majority of the judges that, that Trump confirmed, the Senate confirmed during the Trump presidency, with the exception of the two Supreme Court judges, were done with bipartisan votes. And not just like one or two, but a whole lot. So is that Trump ruling us per se, or Republicans, or is that the all of the parties? And then if we look at the actual power of the judiciary, I mean, Trump, this ruler that we have, all of a sudden says that some district court judge in Hawaii can issue a nationwide injunction and stop, which I question the constitutionality of that, but can stop the president from implementing his, say, Muslim ban. And then the, the other thing I would just say is that on when we talk about impacts on minority groups, like I don't, I completely agree with you. Sometimes just because we don't have rulers doesn't mean that minorities aren't treated unfairly, that there are not bad outcomes in American politics. But I think rule and, and kind of a bad outcome for minority groups aren't synonymous, right? I mean, I think the system's not perfect by any means. I'll be the first one to admit that. But I think it does sometimes give us those outcomes, but it, those outcomes are different. They're not perpetrated by rulers. And the absence of majority rule is not minority rule per se. But I do think you're right about the illegitimate, the illegitimacy problem and this idea, and this gets back to my idea of kind of politics as production. And when you see outcomes as the ultimate be all and end all, is, and you think about politics as a means to an end, the rules kind of go out the window, your opponents become illegitimate, you can do whatever it takes to get your outcome. And that I think is a fundamentally kind of Marxist production oriented view of politics that is very at odds with our system. And if the, and and so in that sense, I think, yeah, our, our democratic republic is in big danger. And on that front, I think it's both sides. I think there's a general perversion in how we think about politics today that just scares the crap out of me. All right. So let me try to pull a few things together here. So I, I think the idea of legitimate opposition is a really crucial lens through which to, to understand what's happening in contemporary U.S. politics. And it also ties us to early U.S. politics in which I think Andrew Jackson would have said, uh, you know, that the legitimacy of the Clay uh, Adams bargain that was illegitimate, right? That was a that was you know that that election was stolen from him, the 1824 election. Now, the idea of a party system in which there is legitimate opposition is something that that wasn't part of the way that the framers really thought about politics because they didn't they thought that they were going to avoid parties. And you know, I mean, you can read Richard Hofstetter's book on the idea of a party system and how legitimate opposition took a while to develop. Nancy Rosenblum has a wonderful book on the importance of, of political parties and how they developed in, in U.S. politics. And look at the election of 1800, right? I mean, there was a period in U.S. politics in this very early era that I would definitely not romanticize because it was it was incredible hardball politics, the way that state legislatures would you know decide how to change their their slates of electors, change how they did districting every cycle. I mean, you think gerrymandering is bad today. I'll show you what it was like in the 1820s and the 1830s. So all of this is to say, I like I don't want to go back to that period, but it was also a period in which the federal government had a, a lot less power and a lot less responsibility uh, over the lives of most Americans because you know most Americans lived on farms or independently. Uh, you know the the federal government didn't have all that much power. Uh, you know state governments and were, were still more important. So uh, although the politics at the national level was incredibly nasty and brutish. The role of the federal government was much smaller. And, you know, of course, eventually this wound up in a civil war as we failed to, to resolve the underlying conflicts about slavery that, that got worse and worse as Western expansion forced the issue. 
So we could talk all we want about what Andrew Jackson did, but I, I definitely don't want to go back to that era of politics because I think we've progressed as uh, as a society. Our understandings of, of who's included in the political community have progressed. Our idea of inclusive democracy has progressed and our expectations for what we do collectively and the role of uh, the federal government has transformed. People lived pretty meager lives for the most part. I don't want to go back to the 1824 standard of living. I, I like our current standard of living. And I like the level of inclusive politics in which the franchise is not just limited to propertyed white men over the age of 25. I think that's good development. So the challenge, uh, I think, then is, you know, one, how do we reinvigorate this idea of, of legitimate opposition, uh, which I think is crucial for democracy? And second, how do we continue to think about the story of American democracy as one that continues to progress and grow and respond to the circumstances, just as the framers were responding to the realities of 1787 and using the best available political science and political theory at the time, so should we continue to respond to our expectations and moralities and realities of our political and social economy at our current time? And that's the, you know, the, the idea that the framers got it totally right, some you know, period in 1787 when the the first decades of American politics were incredibly tumultuous, and there was you know lots of of, of you know what what we would consider to be undemocratic behavior by today's standards. And I, you know, I mean, it's it's just by dint of luck that we didn't collapse into some kind of authoritarian society. I think in the early in the early period, the 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 first Adams administration, you know, huge crackdown on civil liberties, lots of lots of hardball tactics could have very easily gone the other way. So we have to think of this as part of a broader story. And I agree with Julia that we've had tremendous backsliding and part of it is digging out. But you know, I think part of it also has to be what's, what's the next chapter of American democracy. And it can't just be like the previous chapter because the previous chapter brought us to the, this current ditch moment. Yeah, I want to clarify. I know that the Itch moment, first like couple of decades of the American Republic did not have this concept of legitimate opposition. But what I, I want to still emphasize is that the Constitution, if it, maybe a better word would be legitimate contestation and rule of law, that the Constitution definitely does not presuppose that one, one group is going to take power um, and never face any contestation, and certainly that one individual isn't going to. I think in order for the Constitution to work, you have to have you have to have accountability and contestation. Maybe I'm being too rosy about the Constitution, or maybe that's a 21st century reading of it, well, or like a post-Civil War reading of it. Whatever it was, I think Trump was just in direct contravention to it all the time. Well, I, I, I you know, I, I think you're right that there's definitely a spirit in the drafting of the Constitution and the political theory and thinking that guides it. The politics is about contestation. And basically, as as I understand Madison's political theory, it's not the idea that nobody rules. It's the idea that nobody rules permanently and that the sustainability of democratic self-governance is that uh, you know, we, we take turns and alliances shift. So at, at one moment, some 
coalition may rule on a on a certain set of issues and then that coalition goes away so that there there's no sense that anybody is going to have a be part of a permanent minority or anybody is going to be part of a permanent majority and what we've lost in this current period of politics is the idea that parties take turns and coalitions constantly shift in, in the moments in which american politics has has gone downhill or the moments in which the coalitions have been extremely dug in and we've we've essentially lost dimensionality in our politics so i mean the the the, the pre civil war era is a very polarized era in which you know we we wind up in civil war the gilded age is also a very polarized era though polarization looks different then and it's an era in which we lose dimensionality. So the question is, how do we bring back multidimensionality? How do we bring back the cross-cutting cleavages and the shifting fluid alliances that are essential to our democracy in which it's okay to lose elections because nobody fears that they're going to be in the permanent uh, minority? And, you know, I think I think you all know my answer to that, which is to blow up the two-party system, but curious for for other opinions. I love the ditch moment. That should be the title of your next book. Or Atlantic, if you're listening, I think Lee would be more than happy to write a 79-page piece called Ditch Moment, which would be a great cover. Now, look, I think, you know, just a couple of things. I love the idea of legitimate contestation, Julia, and I'm going to get to that. But just real quick on Madison. I mean, there was an assumption that you go into the voting booth and you pick your rulers, but that wasn't Madison. I mean, Calhoun had that assumption. Marx, at the, writing at the same time as Calhoun on the other side of the world, had that assumption. There were co contemporaries of Madison who had that assumption. Madison Federalist 10 says that that isn't even possible in our extended republic. Now, obviously, Madison didn't get everything right. But there is this assumption in Madison's political theory that good things happen and rights are protected precisely because there is no majority that can come together, either for institutional reasons, if we put in Federalist 51, or just simply the geographic and diverse scope of our uh, our nation. I mean, he writes to Jefferson about the Virginia, their efforts in Virginia to safeguard religious liberty. And he's like, thank God the Presbyterians and the Baptists hate each other. Thank God for that. Because if they didn't, they would aspire to rule. And so it's not like Madison wants to stop ruling all the time. No, and James, that's been, James, but no, James. I mean, he does. He, he wants to, the entire premise. No, if you read, James, James, that's but, not right. No, but hold on. But, but I just want to say that, like, this is in his papers. I'm writing a book right now on Madison where he goes, he actually explicitly says, no, this isn't about choosing your rulers. For Madison, rule is tyranny. He's very clear about that. Very clear about that. And tyranny doesn't exist in between elections. Tyranny doesn't exist. What Madison wants to do is something that, that no one had figured out how to do, which is to create a permanent space for politics, which is the absence of rule, which is bargaining and negotiation and compromise among equals. James. Yeah. So, okay, Articles of Confederation. Nobody really rules then because nobody can agree to anything. I mean, there, there's a crisis of governance in America in 1785, 1786, and Madison wants power. He, he wants the national government to have a veto over, over state laws because, uh, you know, he, he's worried uh, about states. Like he 100%. wants some, some power. But, I mean, you can't have, have nobody rule because somebody has to, I mean, you can have take turns ruling. Uh, 
I mean, may, maybe I'm, I'm conflating governing, governing. It's very Hamiltonian. Right. This is the this is the geniusly of the of the Constitution. You're right. The Constitution, I'm, it was designed to empower the federal government and the way they could do that. And they couldn't do it with the articles precisely because the articles weren't structured in such a way that would allow them to give them more power. We didn't have a unicameral yet a unicameral assembly. And that was it literally. So if you give them power, guess what? You got a ruler. And Madison was okay in his frame of mind with giving a veto to the federal government precisely because the federal government wasn't equipped to rule. That's why he was okay doing it. I think it was a bad idea. He didn't get everything right, but it was not equipped to rule. Bicameralism is designed. You're going to give Congress a lot of power. Well, let's make sure that for whatever reason, they can't overcome all these natural um, barriers against the majority coalition. And then there's a fluke and they can do it. So let's divide the place in two. That's bicameralism. But, but you've got to let's have, have separation of powers. No, you don't. They don't want majority coalitions. They don't want majority tyranny. The coalitions can change, but you've got to be able to govern. But that's governing and ruling are two different things. Okay. Two well, fundamentally no one is going to give a shit about any of this if we have some sort of coup in 2024. Exactly. But that's and that's just, that's an end of that's an end of politics and an embrace of violence. But look, what I want to say with the idea of legitimate opposition. This is a really important idea because I think it cuts the core here. Implicit in this idea is the assumption that someone has the power to decide who is legitimate and not legitimate. But that's a power that exists outside of and separate from our system. Whereas we don't have that. We decide who's legitimate by fighting about it within our system, according inside our institutions. And when we try to stop people, for instance, January 6th, you know, we have, you know, there's an effort to punish, and the House certainly has the power to do so, to punish lawmakers for using uh, procedures that are that are prescribed by law, that are sanctioned by the Constitution to do things. And, and the idea is that, that somehow undermines the Constitution. You know, they ought not to do that, perhaps. Maybe they should. That's a different question. But when you say that this is like, it's basically damaging when you use procedures in this way, that you can't shut down the government, that you can't raise the debt ceiling because the policy outcomes kind of make the the fact that you can legitimately do that um, irrelevant. That is a way, it's just a, a subtle way of saying that's illegitimate. When you say that the state can't change how their electors are awarded, look, that, that's not to say that the policy question isn't right or wrong. Of course, it can be right or wrong. And that's a policy debate that we have within politics. But when we say somehow that a state changing its laws is akin to like a, a, a seizure of power and a coup, that's a, just a, another way of saying that that's illegitimate. And that is, and look, we do, Madison says in Federalist 10, justice and the general good comes out of the struggle of ambition, counteracting of ambition, of people fighting amongst themselves over what is and is not right as long as they're fighting within the system. And I agree with Julia that there's a big problem here is that we no longer, we have taken our structure of government and pulled it down into the fray. And we have now made it a weapon. And that means that its legitimacy can't stand because what we do now is instead of arguing about the policy questions, we just say that you can't, you're not legitimate. We can't argue about voter ID. You're either racist or you're illegitimate. It's not a policy question anymore. You can't change the laws, which you may have the authority to do so, not because that's a dumb idea to do and it's it's stupid. No, because it's illegitimate, but precisely because it's going to destroy our democracy. That is a very pernicious development that I think is fundamentally incompatible. And you're right. During the beginning of our republic, they fought like hell over these things. It was insane. They were fighting like crazy, trying to do all kinds of stuff. And they were fighting over the nature of our system in many regards. There's two different levels of things. But I do think that our system, while not perfect, has withstood the test of time. I mean, how many republics has France had? 
right? How many different forms of government have they had? I mean, maybe if you count the Civil War and change, I don't think it's changed, but we haven't. We're still kicking for different reasons. And one of the reasons why is that no body can rule here. And our system has changed considerably and it will continue to change and evolve. But as long as we have institutions where we can go and fight amongst ourselves over what we ought to do, what our politics ought to be and make collective decisions, then we're great. But the second we begin to put barriers up and say that you can't do that in this institution because that is somehow going to destroy the institution, I think that's a fundamentally different thing because Madison saw political conflict as something that would buttress the walls of those institutions and make it possible for them to persist. And it allows for them to continue. And it's those institutions that allow us to actually govern ourselves. If we have to have rulers, then we are all as citizens, both rulers and ruled at the same time. We're not picking our rulers in between elections. Because if we do, guess what? Rulers in American history, not in American history, but in world history, they have a tendency to not stop ruling. And that's what the framers were very worried about. But yeah, but James, so I mean, not all conflict is the same. And the challenge here is certain changes of rules undermine the uh, the potential for future productive conflict. And, you know, may, no, nobody's written that into into law because, it, you know, it's hard to know exactly what the boundaries are. And, you know, it's hard to foresee everything. But I mean, this is the basic challenge of democracy is that it's it's an infinite game. And if you're constantly trying to change the rules and make it harder for there to be legitimate competition and legitimate opposition, then you are destroying the secret sauce that allows conflict to continue. Julia. I mean, I kind of lost the thread here a while ago. I'm not going to lie. We were supposed to be talking about the Barton Gilman piece and about saving American democracy. And we're back in a cul-de-sac about what the Constitution means and what it means to rule versus govern. And I guess, I mean, the latter is, is relevant, which is why I brought it up. But I don't think it's it matters that much, you know, what what was meant at the time. The reality is a lot of people don't feel like their voices are heard in their government or the government reflects their preferences. And I think the specific problem that we're talking about is this sort of effort that is, I think, pretty one-sided to elude accountability and to suggest, you know, we don't have to be accountable to majorities. We don't have to be accountable to people other than those that we choose to be accountable to. And that's that's a sort of fundamentally anti-democratic attitude. And that's, I mean, this is sort of similar to the idea of, oh, it's it's constitutional to change how we select presidential candidates. You know, it may be constitutional, but first of all, it's not being done in the spirit of, well, this would be, you know, cleaner or, you know, be um, more representative of people's views. It's being done specifically to subvert the votes that people cast. But are those people not also then accountable to majorities in their in their electorates? I mean, are they not? I mean, it, it, what? where is someone doing something that is not be, not able to be held accountable? State legislators are voted on, and if people don't like what they're doing, they can vote for new state legislatures. Yeah, right? and maybe they will. But, you know, the other things that are going on, and this is just repeating all the basic talking points from Twitter, but we have highly gerrymandered maps. That is a bipartisan, that is a bipartisan effort. But it is also true that the states, the Democratic states where they're gerrymandering Democratic majorities are not trying to change the electoral college voting. And there's also a sort of anti-protest. But you have the National Popular Vote Compact 
and some of those states certainly are signatories of that, and that would certainly alter with a completely legitimate effort to do so, the electoral vote system. But I'm not suggesting you are. I'm just saying that that they are changing the way they're 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 using their authority to change the way they award electors, which is the same thing. The National Popular Vote Compact. It's not what we're talking about. I mean, if that goes into effect, we could have that same we could have that same conversation about will these states choose the national popular vote winner? So, for example, if Maryland were to do that and change, you know, send their slate to vote for a Republican who's won the national popular vote. But, you know, again, this sort of it's mostly going in one direction. Right. That's I think that's sort of the key. And the idea behind the national popular vote compact is not fuck you. We're just going to win because we're going to say your votes were illegitimate. The idea behind that is that the the winner of the presidency should be the person who won the national popular vote. We can debate about whether that's a good idea. It's a fundamentally different idea than the legislature can just throw out people's votes. And, you know, that's I just don't think we can procedure away the substance of what's going on and the substance of this sort of effort to delegitimize part of the population and to subvert accountability and and legitimate opposition. But we've all been arguing about this for about 45 minutes. So I think we've left our listeners with many questions. I think we have left our listeners with a variety of different perspectives on the American founding and um, maybe fewer perspectives on precisely the nature of what's going on here, although maybe we've offered a couple different lenses for that. So I'd like to thank everyone for for joining us today. This has been another episode of Politics in Question, and we'll have to pick up perhaps each of these individual issues on their own for future episodes. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.